0: Thank you for listening to the podcast of Dublin Bible Church. Well, how are we doing this morning, church? Good. I've got I've got a smattering of good and and and, and a lot of So, but but I'll take it. I'll take it. No, um, thank y'all. Uh, thank y'all for for letting me be up here. And uh, I wanted to thank Chad, especially for letting me uh, for letting me preach today. Um, and I'm um, very excited about this. Uh, also, very excited about uh, a young guy who helped us out, out up here today, um, AJ Davidson. He he came in and uh, led worship for us. Y'all give him a huge hand. He he's a very talented guy, and uh, we're very blessed to have him with us and basically as a, as a resource that we can we can utilize. Um, thank you very much, AJ. You did a did an awesome job. Well, uh, we're going to be uh, we're going to be continuing in our series um, called Uprising. And basically the idea is that as a people of faith, how are we supposed to interact uh, with our culture and how are we supposed to, to live a life of faith? And so what we're doing is we're taking a look at other, uh, at other people of faith all throughout Scripture and how they, uh, how they face some of the challenges and some of the, some of the things that, that God had them do. Um, but first we're going to talk about and we're going uh, to be talking about today well, what I call no way moments. Those moments when you're just watching something happen and you're like, there's no way that just happened. That's impossible, what I just saw, right? And, and we, th- we think about this mainly in the context of, of athletic events, you know. Um, I always go back to one of my favorite, mir- uh, one of my favorite movies is, uh, is Miracle, uh, about the uh, 1980s hockey team. And, and how just against overwhelming odds, they actually, they actually won the gold. And, and I, I think about stuff like that. I think about Michael Phelps, you know, during the Beijing Olympics winning, uh, winning gold in all of his events and just kind of sitting back and going, there's no way he could do that, right? Um, but I think probably my favorite no-way moment uh, was in the 1996 Olympics, and um, and those were the Olympics, of course, that were here in, in the great state of Georgia, in Atlanta. W- was anybody here in Georgia in 1996? Okay, so, so you know how crazy it got during that time, right? It was 100 pounds of crazy in a 50-pound bag. It really was. I mean, you, you had all sorts of stuff going on, different road projects, I mean, just tons and tons of stuff that were happening for a couple of years. Before, uh, before the Olympics ever came here. And so it was just a huge renovation of the entire city. Um, it got kind of crazy because we were like, wow, this is, this is actually kind of coming here. But so we, um, we got to do some uh, pretty awesome things. We actually got to be up on Stone Mountain when, uh, when the torch was coming through. So it's like 3 in the morning, right? And so we're like all huddled up on top of Stone Mountain. Because you wouldn't think that, you know, in the middle of summer it would be all that, that cold. But you are on top of Stone Mountain. There's nothing to block in the wind, and so you're just all huddled up together as closely as you can, you and 500 of your closest friends, right? There's no such thing as, like, the personal bubble. It's like, hello, person, I've never met. How are you? Well, that's great. Oh, you're, you're, you're there, too. Hey, how are you? And so it's just like, you're right there. Uh, but so we got to see the torch, you know, come to the top of Stone Mountain and all that fun stuff. But it was uh, it was very interesting getting to watch all the Olympic events in places that I'd been to before, you know, it's like, yeah, I, I know that place. It's like, oh, that's seventy-eight, huh? That that's that's really cool. Um, and and one of the things about the Olympics is that everybody becomes like an expert at the most the most random of, of of sports, right? It's like you know you're you're hearing people talk about, well, you know, our our archery team really needs to tighten up this year. It's like archery, really archery team you know and, and so it, it's one of those things where everybody becomes like an expert at sports that they they're not gonna watch for the next four years I'll tell you that <laughs> but so we were um we were watching and I think what what had actually happened was that the uh, in this uh, in this particular instance what we were watching was the uh, the ladies gymnastics and if, you, uh, if, you've, if you've seen this, then you probably know where I'm going. What happened was is that this is the first time in, in the history of the Olympics that the, uh, that the United States women's gymnastics team had a chance of winning a gold medal. And so it was kind of some, some earth-breaking stuff, right? And so we were, uh, we were watching that, and we had four more chances because at this point the, uh, the, the ladies' team had pretty much what they call mathematically clinched it. In other words, you know we've we've beaten everybody else pretty uh, pretty well. Now we just need to get one more good solid landing, and we'll get the gold. And the good news is we had like four chances to do it in, right? And then all of a sudden, one by one, these girls you know would run down the little little lane, and they would do their little triple backflip into an indie half gainer or whatever it is they call it, and they would hit the mat, and their feet would slip out from under them. And the first time that happened, it was like, oh, man. And then the second time it happened, it was like, all of a sudden, you got this collective, no way. That, for me, we'll take a break from the story here for a second. For me, that's when I'd be checking the map for, like, Crisco or something, right? Because, like, okay, you get, you get two, two girls back-to-back who are slipping. Let's just make sure there's not, I don't know, oil or something. But... um and then the third one gets up, and they're like, okay, surely this is when it's going to happen, that she'll stick in the landing. And she runs down, and she hits, and she falls too. And so now, like the United States, we're, we're about that far from giving up the gold medal because none of our girls can stick in the landing. And so we are down to our last great hope. And that last great hope uh, came in the form of Carrie Strug. Everybody remember Carrie Strug? Like little four-foot, three-inches, 72-pound soaking wet Carrie Strug, right? Now, the only thing, uh, the only problem with this is that she had injured her ankle the uh, the, the, previous, the previous go-round. She had hit it and, like, torn a lot of the li- ligaments and a lot of the, uh, the muscles. And so, kind of reading up on this, I, I read where she was talking to her coach and she said do we need this do do I actually need to go out there and do this and he said yeah yeah we need it and you need to stick the landing you would better stick the landing and when a Russian coach you know you stick landing or else, you know that sort of thing <laughs> you tend to do that sort of thing <laughs> so little Carrie strug you know runs down this lane like like uh, like nobody's business and she does the vault and she does all this you know flipping and all that fun stuff and for a moment the whole nation was watching probably the whole world was watching at that point point. and we we're wondering is she gonna be able to pull this out she's got like a busted up ankle I don't even know how she ran down the, ran down like the track is she gonna be able to salvage this thing and she lands and she does this little number, and then she salutes the judges and that sort of thing, and then she falls down to her knees. And everybody in the place, I mean, it's absolute bedlam, right? I'm not what you'd call a women's gymnastics expert, okay? But that moment was, was incredible. Everybody, uh, everybody watching that, everybody that was there, it didn't matter if you were a women's gymnastics expert or not. You were going out of your mind, because little Carrie Strug, busted up ankle and all, had done the impossible. And she had come down on that, on that, uh, on that you know hurt leg, and she stuck in the landing where nobody else had been able to, and she won the gold for her team. We love those no-way moments, don't we? Or, or let, let me rephrase it. We love watching those no-way moments, don't we? <laughs> Let me get a show of hands about who would want to uh, be little Carrie Strug with the busted up ankle in that moment. Nobody? Because I sure wouldn't want to. We love watching those no-way moments. When when we're faced with a no-way moment like that, a lot of times it scares the living daylights out of us. When, when, When the cards are stacked against us, when the odds are so long that we can't even imagine a way out of this it scares the living daylights out of us doesn't it and 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 for those of us in here who are believers eventually we're gonna face those no way moments because God is going to let us go through those and and he's going to bring us through those whether we like it or not and I would say that no way moments or when the impossible meets the inevitable. And when, when I say the impossible, basically what I mean is the longest odds you can imagine. There's no way, God, I can do this. There's no way I can get through this. God, there's no way you can save my marriage. God, there's no way that, that, that you can salvage this relationship. There's no way that, that my kid will listen to me. There's no way. It's when the impossible meets the inevitable. In other words, come one way or another, God is going to bring us through that. There's no way moments, like I said, are when the impossible meets the inevitable. As believers, these moments define us. These moments decide what what the rest of our life is going to look like. And we're going to take a look at that a little bit later. But for now, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Numbers chapter 13. And we're going to take a look at a uh, a no way moment that that actually was passed by. Numbers chapter thirteen, and we're going to be uh, in verses one through three. We're going to skip a few, and then we're going to be in twenty five through thirty three. <coughs> and basically, to give you a little bit of the context of what's going on here, Israel had just c- had had come out of Egypt. Um, God had, uh, God had made a covenant with them on Mount Sinai. And now he was telling them, okay, now you're going to be going up and going into Canaan. It's time to go in and take this land that I've given to you, that i promised to your forefathers, that i promised to Moses, and I'm promising to you guys. And picking up in verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. Okay, and so we're not going through verses 4 through uh, 16 because as much fun as it would be for me to stand up here and mispronounce a bunch of Hebrew names, I'm just not going to do that this morning, okay? All that you need to know is that there is one leader from each tribe of Israel. That's good, right? If you really want to, you can go back through and read all of the Mechoyakim uh, and vashnali and all that fun stuff. It's really good. Uh, it cleans out the sil- sinuses. But so God, uh, God told Moses, get a leader from each tribe of Israel, okay? And these are going to be spies, and you're going to send these spies into the land of Canaan. And so basically what they're going to do is they're going to spy it out. They're going to see what kind of stuff is there. And what, he, what he's telling the people of Israel is, test me. Go ahead and test me. I promised you that this was a good land, but I want you all to see it for yourself. And so in, in, uh, in, some, of the, in uh, some of the verses that we, that we skip past here, it actually talks about how the men cut a cluster of grapes, one cluster of grapes, and it was so huge that they had to put it like on a pole, and two of them had to carry it. Like it's a big bear coming out of the woods, right? Like, How big is that cluster of grapes that two men had to carry it? That, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty fertile uh, planting soil, if you ask me. You know what I mean? So it seems like everything's pretty good. It seems like everything's going well, right? we we'll picking up in up uh, in verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. So it, it's, things are going really well up to this point, right? Things are going really well. In verse 28 he says, But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses. He says, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we have explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes and look the same to them. So, so one minute we've got, you know, things are going really well, right? The land is really good. They brought back a cluster of grapes. It was huge. They said it's a land flowing with milk and honey, just like you said. Just like God promised, Right? And then they said, but, but here's the thing. There are people in there, and they're stronger than we are. There's no way we can take it. There's no way we can take it. And then Caleb, and actually we'll, we'll find out later Joshua, who were, t- who were uh, two of the spies, they kind of stood up and they said, um, actually, <laughs> they don't speak for all of us. Yes, we can take it. Let's just go in there and take it right now. We got it. We got this thing, right? God told us to go in and take it. Let's go in and take it. Isn't it funny how when we, when we first start facing opposition to something that God has told us to do, that it's so easy to give up? That when, that when God you know, calls us out on a long shot and he says, okay, I need you to trust me in this, this is going to be difficult. But I promise you, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. When we first start facing opposition, how easy it is to give up. You see, the the Israelites thought they were just going to go in and receive this land, right? Most of these people thought, okay, well we're you know this is a lush, beautiful, you know, fertile, you know, planting ground, and we're just gonna go in, and for some reason, nobody else is settled here. And then when they go in there and it's like, oddly enough, as beautiful as it is, I guess other people found it too. <laughs> when, they, when they finally started figuring out that other people were there, then all of a sudden it was like, well, maybe it's not as good as we thought it was. And so they decided to spread a bad rumor about it, that, oh, there are giants in the land. We look like grasshoppers in, in their sight. It's kind of the opposite of what, you know, fishermen do. I caught one this big, you know. We looked that small. It's amazing how our fears can make us f- feel so so tiny, isn't it? But they thought they were just going to go in and receive this land. And God had told them to go in and take the land. Now, there's a subtle but important difference between taking and receiving, right? There's a very... There's a very important difference in that. And I'll, I'll use two holidays to, to, uh, to illustrate this. Um, like, you, like, Chad, you had mentioned that Christmas is coming up. And so uh, every Christmas there are going to be presents under the tree, and this year there are going to be, uh, under our tree, there are going to be some that are marked Andy, and there are going to be some that are marked Crosby. Okay? Now, nothing that either one of them does is going to be able to change the fact that this one's Andy's. And this one's Crosby's, okay? And so Christmas morning, you know, everybody's going to wake up. Probably at the crack of dawn, they're going to, hey, what's that, huh? That's interesting. You start ripping things apart. It's like, that was my stocking. Why did you rip that apart? But, uh, but nothing that, that they're going to do is going to change the fact that some of those presents are for Andy, and some of them are for Crosby, right? They're receiving those gifts, Now, a few months down the road from that, we're going to have something called Easter. And on Easter, we do a little something called an Easter egg hunt. We we all know what I'm talking about, right? Now, I don't know about y'all, but when I was a kid growing up, what they would do is they would hem all the kids in together in like one tiny room at my grandparents' house for about four and a half hours until the parents had gotten done, you know, like hiding the eggs. And so, of course, we're all sugared up. And we're just antsy, you know, as can be. And so we're, hey, I wonder if it's time to go outside yet. Hey, I wonder if it's time to go outside yet. And they would always leave one poor parent in there to make sure we didn't do anything stupid like go around and kind of scout out everything. And I always, I mean, I didn't then, but now that I realize how awful a job that was, it's like I want to go up to my aunts and uncles and say, yeah, I'm really sorry that you had to do that because that was awful. I don't know how you didn't kill one of us or more, because you'd have been justified. You really would have been. It would have been okay. But on Easter, what's what's going to happen, um, and what they would do is then after like like the four and a half hour period, then they would bring us all out, and it was a scene out of the Hunger Games, right? Because we'd all get up on that line, and you'd be like, you know, your Easter egg baskets in this hand. And you're, and you're just like a horse, like in the, in the leads. I mean, I, I'm I'm almost expecting to hear and they're off, you know. But so we would all tow this line, and like we're looking around, we're looking around, we're looking around, and we're just waiting for one of the parents to say, "Y'all go ahead and go," and we're gonna take off after that line, right? And we're gonna charge up the hill, and we're gonna get you know as many Easter eggs as we can. And if you don't get any Easter eggs, it's because you are slow or bad at finding Easter eggs. On Christmas, we receive gifts. At Easter, we take Easter eggs. This wasn't Christmas. This was more like Easter, because God was telling them, you're going to go in and you're going to take the land. You're going to be facing opposition so you're going to have to fight for it. You okay with that? And when push came to shove, the Israelites' response was, no. So what ended up happening is that these people, this handful of men, ten men in all, they turned the entire Israelites against, uh, against Moses, and they said, listen, there's no way we can go in there and take this. The land swallows people up. There are giants in the land, and we look like grasshoppers to them. Yeah, I mean, it's a good land, but how are we supposed to fight giants? When all along, God was saying, that's the land that I prepared for you. Go in and take it. When we have to work for it, oftentimes we think that the task is too big for us to, to accomplish. When God lays something on our heart, oftentimes what we think is, well, I guess, God, you're just going to handle all of that, and I can just take a step back. And God is more saying, no, we're working in this together. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm doing all the heavy lifting here, but you've got some skin in the game too. It's not like you just get the day off and you're just going to, hey, you're doing a good job there, (laughs) you know? We're working with God. And the thing is, is that when, when we do face opposition, we start to throw around terms like impossible, like they matter to God, right? You, you know what I think? I, I think that actually our term impossible is one of, one of God's favorite favorite things to hear. Because that's when he gets to sit back and go, oh, it's impossible? Oh, it can't happen? Okay, well, tell you what, big boy, I'm, I'm going to let you do it. I'm going to let you try your best. And then when you're at your wit's end and you've got nothing left, I'm just going to accomplish it, and I'm going to do it, okay? Because here's the thing about me and impossible. I love to do the impossible. Thank God that we serve, uh, that we serve a God who accomplishes the impossible. Amen. If you got, uh, if you're still in Numbers, flip over to chapter 14, verses 36 through 38, and we're going to take a look at, uh, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. Because, like I said, what what had happened was that the Israel was that the Israelites they they rebelled against God, and they said, did, "Did you bring us out here to die in the desert? Is that what you is that what you did?" Is it that there were no graves in Egypt for us? Did you, did you bring us this close to, just to die at the, at the hands of these, you know, these Canaanites? Is that what it was? And so they said, tell you what we're going to do. We're going to pick a leader for ourselves, and we're going to go back to Egypt. And it's like, of all the boneheaded dumb things you could possibly do, why were you going to go back to Egypt? How could that possibly look good to you? After you've seen the land that God has provided for you, is there going to be opposition? Yeah. But guess what? The same God who promised you that the land was going to be flowing with milk and honey is the same God who promised you, and you're going to be able to take it. But they decided, nah, we won't do that. So they rebelled against God, and God, sa- God says, Listen, I can't stand these people anymore. I'm I'm not going to be with you guys and Moses pleads and begs God not to not to leave their presence. And God says, here here's here's the thing. I'm not going to forsake you people, but everybody who who had their minds changed about this, none of you people are actually going to see the promised land. In fact, the way that he puts it is everybody who's 20 years and older is going to die. And you're not going to see it. But your children are, because they weren't the ones who made the the bad decision in the first place. And then in verse 36, we read, So the men Moses had sent to explore the land who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report about it, these men responsible for spreading the bad report about the land were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. Of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephunneh survived. God doesn't take uh, disobedience lightly. And he doesn't take you bad-mouthing his best lightly either. So these men who, who went in, they said, yeah, but they're, they're giants and there's no way we can take it. God said, oh, okay, is that, is that really how you want to play with this? And so he struck them down with a plague and they died. Not, not really a feel-good uh, message so far, right? <laughs> Sorry. But Caleb and Joshua, the two who said that they could take the land... Oddly enough, they were the only two who weren't struck with the plague. And there's something pretty interesting about this because you see that the ten who said that they couldn't take the land, they didn't. The two who said they could, they did. And in fact, the way that we put this is tens think they can't, and they don't. Twos think they can, and they do. This isn't some self-esteem message. This isn't me you know, saying, well, just believe, and just try your best, and da-da-da-da-da. This isn't that at all. This is me saying, you need to check out your perspective of God, and you need to think about what you think about God. Because it wasn't that these men saw anything different. Caleb and Joshua saw the exact same opposition. Didn't they? Of course they did. They all saw the exact same thing. But Caleb and Joshua knew who God was, and they knew that he would be good to his word. Now the interesting thing, like I said, is that all those who turned, who turned against God and said well let's just go back to Egypt there's nothing for us here all those people died in the died in the wilderness their children were the ones who inherited the promise the only two who were some of the original people who came up out of Egypt were Caleb and Joshua because tens think they can't and they don't and twos think they can and they do We need a lot more twos and a lot less tens, don't we? We need a lot more people who, who say, God, you've told me to do something, and, and all I know to do is just to keep on doing this and try to keep on accomplishing this. And God, I am so outgunned and I'm so outclassed that it's not even funny, but here I stand, I can do no other. God, the odds are so stacked against me right now that, that I can't even I can't even see which way is up, but as long as you're with me, that's all I need, and that requires bravery. That requires courage, on a, on a huge level, doesn't it? the The thing is, is that Caleb and Joshua didn't have didn't have a wrong perception of of the opposition they just had a correct perception of God because our perception of God directly influences what we will attempt for him. We always say that God is bigger than, than, than our problems. God is, God is mightier than anything we're going to go through. We say what we think, but we live out what we believe. And, and when, we, when we live out the fact that, okay, God, you say you're big enough for this, but I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know if I can actually trust you in this. Then we're living out the fact that we don't really trust God. <laughs> There comes, there comes a time in our life when each of us are faced with uh, what I call a holy discontent. And I don't mean, well, gosh, I, I'd really like a bass boat, you know, <laughs> or I'd really like a, a, a bigger truck or a bigger house. A holy discontent, not, not a materialistic discon- discontent. But a holy discontent. In other words, when we see something in our culture or in our city or in our context that just we know it's not right. Something that is just so glaringly wrong that it makes us stand up and it makes everything in us rise up and want to change it. For me, one of those things has always been seeing students make terrible, terrible decisions and ruin their lives in, 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 the, in the course of just a few hours making one, making one bad decision. and i've had plenty of chances to to counsel with students and to talk with students and to say what is what what's going on here and and i've had plenty of time to see that the enemy ha, has a has a stranglehold on on the culture of our of our middle school and our high school students today he really does and there's this holy discontent in me that says what we're doing is not enough. What we're, how, how we're reaching our, our culture is not enough. The, the same old, same old just isn't good enough anymore. And in you guys, in each and every one of us in here who are believers, I pray that God would raise up in us a holy discontent, something that gets stuck in our craw to the extent that we can't we can't stop thinking about it we can't we can't get it off our mind we can't get it out of our get it out of our heads because it's something that won't let us go because it's something that that we know it, it breaks the heart of god and so it breaks it breaks our hearts too and and here's the thing i can promise you this when you begin to engage with that holy discontent when you begin to say okay god now I see that there is this problem here in my world. And now I'm going to try to fix it. I can promise you, you will be so completely overwhelmed, you will be so completely out of your depth that it won't even be funny. You won't have enough resources, you won't have enough time, you won't have enough, uh, enough knowledge about the material. But you, but you have something that trumps all that and you'll have the presence of God and you'll have the resources of God and you'll have the power of almighty God in your life. One of the, one of the greatest blessings as believers is that God lets us work with him in the, in the ministry of reconciliation, in the ministry of reconciling not only people to himself but, but the world itself. Systems of government, we get to reconcile. I, 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 entire programs, we will get to reconcile. And I honestly believe that if the church were to stand up and say, this is, this is eating away at me. And, and as individuals, if we, were to, if we were to stand up and say, I can't stand this anymore. If we were to be like Popeye and, and stand up and say, I've had all, all I can stands, and I can't stands no more. And if we were to engage in that, in that holy discontent, in that thing that we know that God has burdened our hearts with, yeah, we're going to be outgunned. But we're going to see the, the power and the might of God. Because the Israelites were outgunned, right? There was no way they could go in and by themselves they could take this land. But it was the power of God in, in that community that was going to make it a possibility. The heartbreaking thing about this to me is that they didn't do it. None of these people that that saw God part of the Red Sea, that saw the, you know, saw the miracles that God had done. None of them got to see the promised land because they they just didn't have the faith to to go through it. May that never be us. May we never be right on the cusp of God's promised land for us, and we back off and say, "I, I don't know, God. I, you can't change this about my life. You can't change the. You can't break this addiction, God. You can't. You can't make my my child understand this, God. You can't change this at my at my work. There's no way you can do that. It's impossible." like i said god loves when we start throwing around terms like impossible because that's when he gets to show just how big he is but when we when we uh when we engage with that holy discontent we're going to face or overwhelming opposition. We really will. Because one of the things we'll be going up against is the enemy. And he, he doesn't necessarily want certain things to change. He's, he's okay with the fact that there are 27 million slaves in the world. Most of those are going to be under the age of 13. Most of those are going to be young ladies and all of those are going to be in the sex trade ten million of those uh... we know are generally going to be in the united states at one time or another holy discontent there are some countries that that the bible is outlawed in if you're seen with it in your possession you'll be scooped up off the street and you'll be thrown into prison. So what they do in those countries is that people will go in with suitcases full of Bibles. Nobody really knows what they're doing. They have a contact in the country, and they've said, listen, I've got something coming in. You might want to take a look at it. You might want to be at the corner of these two streets at this certain time. And they will drop a Bible, they'll, they'll drop that suitcase off. They'll go you know, a couple of blocks away, and in about 30 minutes, they'll come back and pick up an empty suitcase. That's a holy discontent. What is it that's inside us that makes us, makes us want to change something about this world? Is there something inside us that makes us want to change the world? There should be. There should be something inside each and every one of us as believers that we say, that's not right. I see this happening, and, and that's got to change. and when we when we face this overwhelming opposition we're going to have uh we're going to have two options first option is we can skirt the challenge and basically we can do what the israelites did and we can say well no thanks that, that that's not for me so i'm just going to back off and i'm going to let you do whatever you need to do here and i'm just going to i'm just going to put myself in a little holding pattern I don't want to do this, I don't want to pay this price, no thanks. And you can make that choice. It's a bad choice, but you can make it. It's a very safe choice, because you're not putting anything up, right? Or, we can risk the promise. And when I say risk the promise, what I, what I mean is, we can put everything on the line, and we can say, God, you've told me this is what you want me to do. You've told me that this is where I need to go. So everything in my life, I'm, I'm, putting, I'm putting it up you know, as collateral against your word. And I'm putting it up as collateral against your faithfulness to me. And if this is where you want me to go, then I'll go and I'll do it. If this is what, what you want me to do, then I'll do it. That's a very unsafe choice to make, isn't it? Our God isn't a very safe God, though. One of my one of my favorite lines in uh, in C.S. Lewis's uh, the line "The Witch in the Wardrobe" was when the Pevensey children. Hey, we've got people who've read that before, right? Okay. When the Pevensie children, they, they, meet with one of the, uh, they meet with one of the animals, and all of a sudden the animal starts talking, and oh, wow, that's kind of weird. That shouldn't be happening, but okay, we're just going to go with it. So they meet with, uh, they meet with um, one of these animals, and so, um, and so Peter, who's the oldest sibling, who's like the third parent, right? Because here's, here's the thing. If you're the oldest sibling in here, you were the third parent growing up, weren't you? Okay, here's, and here's the other thing. If you didn't know that, you were the third parent growing up. So talk to your younger siblings. They'll, they'll confirm what I just said. But, but Peter, who is like who is the oldest sibling, he's in this room where he doesn't know what's going on, he doesn't know who's who, and he doesn't, they don't know their right hand from their left pretty much. But he's met with this little talking animal, and so uh, they just call him Mr. Beaver. And so this beaver is telling him, well, we've got to take you to Aslan, we've got to take you to Aslan, da-da-da-da-da. And so Peter says, well, well, is he safe? And what he's hoping to hear is that, yes, he's safe. In fact, he's safe for the whole family, right? But that's not what he hears. What he hears is that, no, he's not safe. He's a lion. Have you ever met a lion who, who has been safe? They're lions for a reason, you know? He said, of course he's not safe. But he's the king, and he's good. Following God in our lives is not going to be a safe course of action. It's not going to be the thing to do if we want to be safe and sound. But it is the thing to do if we want to make a difference in our world. And it is the thing to do if we want to actually be the people of God and to effect a change in our culture. And imagine what would happen if all of us in here, if we began engaging with that holy discontent in our lives. Imagine what could happen if to a man and to a woman in here, we found that thing that just, ugh, we, can't, we can't go to sleep because of it. We can't, we can't stop thinking about it. We can't stop thinking about how we want to change this and how we want to do something different. Imagine what could happen if each and every one of us got so infuriated with the way things were that we absolutely had to change it. And imagine what could happen if, if we got so sick and tired of things the way that they've always been that we decided it's time to change that. In short order, we could change this entire world because God has one hope for the world. That's the local church. Plan A has always been the local church because the local church is the only way that people will come to know Christ and people will come to the saving knowledge of Christ. It has been the avenue of the greatest change in our entire history. And it can start today if you want to. And it could be as simple as you praying that God would reveal that holy discontent in your lives. And Ban, y'all can go ahead and come on back up. I don't know about y'all, but there is something broken in this world, isn't there? I mean, is it there? Am, am I, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm alone. There's something wrong with the world. There really is. And I know that God must must feel the exact same way. But the same God who who parted the Red Sea, the same God who, who gave... Uh, women back their children who raised the dead back to life that's the same God who can in the same way can change this world that we live in but in order for us to see that it's going to cost something it's not going to be safe and it's not always going to be easy but I can guarantee you this It's worth it. Everything that we could possibly uh, put into it, it is worth it. Amen?